Turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 12 this morning, we've been walking our way through the book of Mark. If you're new, we've been we spent quite a bit of time here, and we've come kind of toward the end of the book here. But I, I want to put up a slide to begin with, and this slide—I don't know if you know this, Yolo. Anybody know what this means? You only live once. <laughs> he got it. Next slide there. Uh, you only live once. Now, they didn't know Lazarus, okay? Um, (laughs) But this idea of YOLO, you only live once, has really made an influence in our culture of today. There's uh, other adjectives that would really give this idea. I think of live for the moment, you hear that, or living in the moment. And there, if you punch this in, YOLO songs, okay, you will get tons of songs that are written on this concept. I just, just a quickie here from Bon Jovi from 2000, It's My Life. Look at what it reads here. This ain't a song for the brokenhearted, no silent prayer for the faith departed. I ain't going to be just a face in the crowd. You're going to hear my voice when I shout it out loud, it's my life. And, and you probably know the lyrics if, if the melody was with it, but it's now or never, I ain't going to live forever, I just want to live while I'm alive, it's my life. My heart is like an open highway, like Frankie said, I did it my way. I just want to live when I'm alive, it's my life. That idea of living for the moment is a worldview that's present and it, it is impacting generations of people. It is, but I've got to say this, it isn't new. Matter of fact, we see this with a group of people this morning in Mark chapter 12. Look at verse 18 here to begin with here. Again, this is just a couple of days before Jesus goes to the cross. And another group is lined up to try to minimize his ministry and to kind of diminish who he is. And it says this, And the Sadducees came to him and say that there is no resurrection. Now I'm going to stop here for a moment because you notice that Mark gives a commentary on this group of people in that they do not believe, they believe something's different uh, in, in terms of their understanding of the resurrection. But this group was politically connected with Rome, and if you were to maybe look at this group, they were the academic elites at that time. Now, there's other pieces here because there's evidence that this group only took the first five books of the Bible and viewed them as the scriptures. They kind of dismissed, there's evidence that they dismissed the rest of the Old Testament. But one of their beliefs that they only believed in the physical world. And they believed this, that the soul died and was done with when death came. And yet, they believed in Yahweh. See, the reality is, is there was no future for this group of people. And maybe to say it even different is, is this. They actually didn't need hope. Why do you need hope if there's no future out there? See, in their beliefs, there was no eternal consequences for life even on this earth. They were religious still, though. They were Jewish. And they still believed in a God. Catch the kind of contradiction there. And I think it's this way. Either they had a very small view of God, or they had a very distant God. One that just started the universe in motion, and then God stepped back and just kind of let the world go by itself. Matter of fact, functionally, I think what they were is they were a type of deist. 
Now, if you don't know that term, deism, a deist is basically believes this. There's a God up there, and God kind of starts creation. He winds the clock up. If you remember the old wind-up clocks. And, and he starts it, and he just stands back and lets it go. That's a deist, a single God. Now, I understand many of our founding fathers, people don't kind of try to deny this, but many of our founding fathers were deists. Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, and actually many believe that Abraham Lincoln as well was a deist. But catch this, the Pharisees were opposed to this group, the Sadducees. They called them heretics. Why? Because of their view of the Old Testament. Now, if you remember a while back, Jesus actually warned about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that leaven meaning their doctrinal teaching. But they believed in one sense that they were special people. They were the Ivy League thinkers of the day, the elites. And they looked at Jesus, they would look at Jesus and say, a common man. (laughs) He's unsophisticated. You know, I think if you took them to our day and age, they would only shop at Nordstrom's and Neiman Marcus. They wouldn't, they'd, they'd stay away from Target and Walmart. They, were, they viewed themselves as kind of this elitist group of people. Now, one piece of trivia for this group, it's interesting. About 70 AD, they disappear off the scene and are never heard from again. And had very little influence, had no influence after that point. But let me keep going in the text. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, meaning Jesus, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died, and in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, I think the deeper question is here, is why were those brothers, why didn't they get it? They were marrying a a widow maker here, okay? Uh, I I think we got to realize that. Uh, Maybe she had insurance policies all lined up along the way, I don't know. But this trick question, looking to discredit Jesus, I don't know if you realize, it comes from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25. I'll put that on the screen for you. It says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Now, at first glance, it's looking like this is actually a legitimate question that they're throwing at him. But you, as we realize, even looking back here, this is to entrap Jesus. Throw him into a theological controversy with this hypothetical question. But look at the response of Jesus in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, so he's refuting again their belief that there's no resurrection. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. 
And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, you got to catch, Jesus understands the background of, this, of these men. He knows that most of them probably would have memorized those first five books of the Bible. And Jesus goes after and said, guys, you haven't read your Bibles. And, and folks, this would have been a slap in the face to them. But he goes even farther. He goes back to Exodus chapter 3. And look what it says in 3 verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he adds, a little commentary here, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. See, this Exodus passage here, you have to catch this, uses the present tense in implying in terms of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is still, in the present tense, their God. God is God, and these men who've even died would imply then that through the power of God, these men have also been resurrected. So he wasn't the God of them before and no longer is, but he still is their God. See, he confronts the air of their understanding of biblical truth that really they failed to comprehend. But then Jesus goes on to respond about marriage, and he gives the reality of the future. And in many ways, his explanation of marriage is as much for the people, I think, that are listening to him in this exchange and maybe for the disciples as well. And I think as we look at this, it's going to apply to us in our day and age as well. So let me deal, I'm going to just kind of jump into some applications here this morning. What's the first one here? And this is how I, what I came up with. Number one, realize this. One can be religious and even respect the Bible, and yet hope is not found in a relationship with Jesus nor following Jesus. See, these people, these Sadducees, they were religious people. They knew the Pentateuch, the first five books. But the first point is something that we need to keep in mind, I believe, as we look to bring the gospel to people. See, the Great Commission calls us to engage this world for the purpose of making disciples. And yes, we live in a fallen world. It includes broken families, hurting marriages, broken relationships, individual lives that are broken, loneliness out there. But if we are going to engage them with the purpose of giving them a future hope of the gospel, in order to be effective, we must learn to understand people and how and what they believe about God. Now, if you were to just think of somebody, maybe you work um, right now or a neighbor or whatever, and he asked the question, what do they believe about God, about Jesus? Do you know that? See, I think this, we need to be acutely aware and we need to learn to listen closely to find out their view of who God is 
especially God as Father. And who is the Son? And when you listen closely to those people, and it might be in your homes or, or it might be friends of yours, it might be relatives of yours, if you listen closely, what you're going to find is many of them are deists. Practically, they're deists. And, but Jesus, he understood these people. And, and we need to learn the same thing. I understand, we have a message of hope. And the reason we have it is because of Jesus. And he is very different from a distant God. So we need to be prepared to give them Jesus. We need to be prepared to give them a real, loving, and connected Heavenly Father. A Father who wants to connect relationally with us. Folks, that is the basis of where real hope is going to come from. But there's this nuance we need to understand because people today in general, they will believe they can say, you know what, I know that God loves me. Yet this, they don't really care about following Jesus. They can acknowledge God loves, maybe from a distance, but they're not concerned about the triune God and living under their authority. People must respond to this Jesus, the man that's going to the cross this week. In order for real hope, for, for real hope to take place in the hearts of people. Remember John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the issue, folks. And we need to learn to listen to people and go, do they understand who Jesus is? And I realize that oftentimes in our day and age, it takes a long time to build a relationship with people and to sow the seeds of what the gospel really is about. And yeah, I think some people have to come along and water it afterward, but we must be diligent in our understanding. But functionally, the Sadducees, again, the deists of that era, and still somewhat religious. Now, I'm going to make a statement here. I was debating whether I'd do it or not, but I think I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, there are many, I don't know if you realize this, but there are many clergy in churches of today here in the United States who have stopped believing that we have a God who does miraculous things. They've stopped believing the need for repentance to follow Christ. I, I don't know if you realize that there are seminaries out there today that are denying the virgin birth or they deny the resurrection of Christ. It doesn't matter. I knew a pastor in Brainerd area that believed this. And yet they teach about God's love. Everybody gets to heaven, but there's a contradiction there because if God is distant and he's not engaged... And if his son does not, is not resurrected, how can he resurrect you and me? Do you feel the contradiction there? Folks, the world needs Jesus is the bottom line there. But here's another principle, I think, from this text. Number two, when one knows Christ, we must live our lives with the end or eternity in mind. And this is opposite the Sadducees. And you know what? This is hard not 
to do it like the Sadducees. You know the word YOLO. You only live once. Folks, it is a tempting attitude and it is subtle in our culture. It's alluring. I, I think we go to the extreme where we say this. It's a you know party hard before we die. Fun is the goal. I, I think there's a subtleness to, subtleness to it that we don't get. Matter of fact, for us that are a little older, you know, being 41 and up here, I realize that, okay, <laughs> listen, I'm 61. YOLO is tempting to people that are 61. I don't know if we really recognize this. I, 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 here's the struggle that I have with my generation. I think as older people, we look at younger people and we complain and, and, and we accuse them of going, you know what, you're just living in the present. Immediate gratification generation, you maybe heard that. And, and we point fingers and we don't realize that there's three fingers coming back at us. See, living for the moment is deeply tempting to followers of Christ. And maybe as much for those that are retirement and hitting the empty nester period. See, living for the moment might be only worried about your kids and your grandkids in that moment. You know what? I'm going to give my leftovers, my time, my money, leftovers to God. See, living for the moment might be about not wanting to get tied down and make sure that we have the flexibility to live our life. Isn't that living for the moment? Living for the moment. I want my life to be easy and to retirement and I want to go fishing every day or golfing every day. That is living for the moment. Uh, I don't know if you realize, if you talk to anybody who works within a church, and what we're finding is that for the older, my generations and older and, and just coming up behind me, do you realize that more and more it's about not wanting to get tied down to make sure that we have the flexibility? And that, you know, we make this statement, I, I've heard it too often, you know, it's time for the younger people to step up. I serve my time. I go, folks, that statement is irresponsible. It really is. If we are maturing in our faith, we should be taking more responsibility for the generations that come behind us. And I go this, why can't gray-haired people or bald-haired people, whatever, work in student ministries? Why is it that we're saying 40-year-olds can work in student ministries and not 50s and 60s and 70s? Where is the biblical support that our time is now to coast when it comes to the kingdom of God and disciple-making? Some say Revelation 23.1. At age 62 is when you can check out of making disciples. There is no Revelation 23, by the way. <laughs> but don't we have to admit, and it's young, middle-aged, it's old, that we can live in the present and the present can consume us. And as followers of Jesus, we can actually live like the Sadducees on this planet. And I think of Apostle Paul who lived for the future and the future equaled the person of Christ. For me to live as Christ, and he had a longing to die as gain, but it was, his, his longing wasn't for retirement, it was actually for heaven. 
And Paul knew that living with the end in mind was about being used to build the kingdom of God today. That's what he believed. But there's another issue as well this morning. And it implies that we need a better understanding even of the future. And it leads to a key point, number three for your notes. I said it this way. Our future, future hope is not based on our present reality. Now, now, what do I mean by this? Let me put up again the response of Jesus here in the text. Verse 25. For when they arise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Did you just hear what Jesus said? There will be no marriages in heaven. Now, I was sort of tempted to put on Facebook this week a a title to this sermon. And the sermon title could have been this, Will There Be Sex in Heaven? (laughs) We would have had standing room only here today if I I would have put that on Facebook, okay? But see here, Jesus answers the question on marriage in a way that they didn't expect. And I suspect that the eyebrows are raised with his disciples and the people that were listening to him here. Uh, you know, I think of funerals over the years and family times when death is near and, and even when families encounter death and both parents uh, leave this world. And I, I hear statements like this, oh, mom and dad are now together in heaven. They're up there in the clouds holding hands. You know, I'll I'll be honest, I don't have the courage, and I realize it's not the time and place to address that statement. See, people want want up there in heaven to be the same down here, only better, much better. See, at times, we've got to be careful because we can elevate an earthly marriage to give it an exaltation beyond what it should be. Now, I want to point this out. If you're single, don't ever believe you are less than whole if you don't have a spouse. Don't. Now, do we want great marriages? My answer to that is yes. But I think we fail to realize that the marriages here on earth is supposed to be, especially within followers of Christ, is is supposed to be a representation of the greatest relationship in all of eternity that will come into existence when the earth is done away with. See, marriage at its highest value represents the mission of the Father to raise up a bride for his son, to partake of an ultimate marriage where the collective saints, married or single, will enter into a relationship with the Son of God. And the Son will bring his bride into the Trinity, into the relationship that he has with his Father and the Spirit. You know, as people look to the future, oftentimes they want to go to the book of Revelation. And oftentimes there's a couple ways people approach it. And one of the ways I hear quite often is that where people can get consumed with how the end times will unfold. And it is interesting, but I think it sometimes what I hear is that they really miss the key point of heaven. 
And other people, I, I, this was my mom and dad, especially my dad, he was, he was enthralled by the physical aspects of heaven. The gold streets, the pearly gates, all of those descriptions of it. You know, Peter standing at the gates. I could tell a joke here, but I won't do that here. But, <laughs> I, but, but let me give you an example. When I was growing up, confirmation class, and I remember being in eighth grade at the time, but about eighth grade through tenth grade, the, the pastor at our church, my home church growing up, he spent between two and three years on the book of Revelation. So that's what we studied in confirmation. Okay, um, but there was a component that I do not remember him hearing or hearing from him or he didn't communicate it well or I just lost it, okay? But let me put up a verse, a couple verses from Revelation 19 to go down the, to this piece here. Verse 6, Then I heard what was the sound like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud uh, peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Folks, this is not an earthly wedding. This is a spiritual wedding taking place between the church and Jesus, the Son of God. But I want to push this farther because it's so critical for us. Look at Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now you've got to catch this phrase because uh, this explains what it means to be like angels. Okay, Look at how it goes. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He, God. God will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Folks, this will far surpass any marriage on earth. It won't compare to any great marriage down here. We will be married to the Son. A relationship that will be so different than what we have now. But He is going to invite us into the relationship with His Father and God is going to be with us. See, we are to live with that kind of future in mind. And we have a hope that's based on a relationship with our Creator. No mourning, no crying, no pain. All these things are going to be in the rearview mirror. And we get to dwell with the Creator of this universe. We get to be with Him. We're going to see His glory. We're going to feel His love like never before. 
we will be transformed into something greater than this earth. And it's why we don't, won't need a marriage. We're going to be with him. And you go, what great news. See, God is the God of the living, the transformed. The resurrection is true. When Jesus died on that cross, it put in the next step in the plan, the mission of God, for something far beyond we can ever understand. Let's stand and pray.